few musicians. Just two notes, because I'm inclined to forget the nature of just forgetfulness, is that this Wednesday is Family Fun Night in our six community groups on the 31st. Also, um, if you're a visitor, we'd love to know more about you. On the inside of the bulletin, there is a place for you to scan a QR code and tell us more about you. So we would really love if you would fill that out so we can get to know you a little more. Let's take one more moment and go, if we can, to the throne of grace. Our Father, would you captivate us by your beauty? Would you be to us our unrivaled king? For the sake, for the name, for the renown, for the glory of our Lord Jesus. You know that no one wants to pay too high a price for anything. In fact, some of you are just probably inveterate bargain hunters. You know the saying, if, you're, if you've invested, buy low, sell high. But the reality is that some sticker shock is inevitable. Recently, I went out to eat with a friend. I got a Philly steak cheese, he got a hamburger, and with drinks and chips it, and tip, it was $42, and I thought, what planet have I arrived at? I could not believe that. I said, next time it's going to be McDonald's or something, I don't know, but even that's gone up. You know, you go to buy a new car or rent an apartment or you get your car repaired, and the price is higher than you expected. It's like, whoa, that's way more than I thought. And rarely do you find yourself thinking, wow, that's so expensive, I'll buy two of them. I mean, imagine if it was that, I was thinking it would be like, you'd talk to someone and they'd have two cars. You're like, don't you just need one? Well, I got, they were so cheap, I thought I'd buy two. You, you, know, you walk in their house and they've got two TV screens side by side. Why do you have two TV screens? They were so cheap, I thought I'd buy two. And, but, you know, it's just not like that. Um, and because you and I are worshipers, We'll desire things, and we'll connect this to the high price of, adultery, of idolatry in a minute. Forgive me, I've realized, as I've been thinking about this text, sometimes my mind says adultery, but I'm thinking idolatry. I'm looking at idolatry and saying adultery, so I'm going to work really hard at that, but I'm going to ask you in advance to forgive me if I get messed up like that. Okay. Because we're worshipers, we desire things. And moms and dads, right, particularly with your children, never forget that your children are worshipers and they're interpreters. And so are you. And because we desire things, we'll inevitably come face to face with the reality of the price of what we desire. It's like a dog that with great enthusiasm chases a pickup truck down the road. And when it eventually catches the pickup truck and the option is, to take the trailer hitch in its mouth, it realized it can't quite do that, right? That maybe the price of catching the pickup truck was a little greater than the dog estimated. 
And because in our fallen nature we worship the wrong things, we'll encounter, we'll discover the very high price of idolatry. And that, you know, is our sermon title this morning. And it's really far too high, as the children of Israel discovered. If you're outside of Christ and you're unregenerate, still unregenerate, then your worship will always tend towards idolatry. And if you're in Christ, regenerate with a new nature, then by the Spirit, praise God, by the Spirit, and you have these two things John Owen said, and I think I've said this in the last two weeks. You have these two things in your favor to help you, and that is a new nature, a new principle, or a new person within you, as in the indwelling spirit, so a new nature and a new resident in the form of the person of the spirit to propel you to, towards true God-pleasing worship. In fact, Warren Wearsby says this of believers. He says, worship is the believer's response of all that they are. Mind, emotions, will, body to what God is and says and does. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that Israel paid a very high price for her idolatry here in Genesis 32, there at the foot of the mountain, way too high. Well, just three points this morning, and I was trying to think how to set this in the framework of these 36 verses, because I want us to quickly grasp the breadth of the passage in what's taking place, but I want to give you just three points to remember. So if you're taking notes, here it is. Number one, we are all idolaters. Number one, we are all idolaters. You are an idolater in the sense that you're a worshiper and idolatry is simply perversion of God ordained worship. It's right, instead of worshiping God, we worship someone or something else, way too high. Secondly, the idolatry brings judgment. That's all over the face of this passage. And then thirdly, only at the cross is the high price of idolatry paid redemptively. So number one, we're all idolaters, or we could certainly say we all have the seed and the capacity for idolatry. Number two, idolatry brings judgment. And number three, only at the cross is this high price of idolatry paid redemptively. Now, what I'd like you to do is, as Chris read this, I'd like to give you the quick framework of basically the seven sections of this passage as you look at it for a moment. And so you might say this is, instead of doing a verse-by-verse exposition through Exodus 32 through our chapter, I want you to think of these of this passage around seven bullet points, the content of it, and then we're going to flesh out these three main points. So very quickly, number one, make us a calf. You'll see in verses one through six, and here's the key verse. I'm going to repeat these. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. So 
So I want you to note the scene here. Moses, as also told in Deuteronomy 9, beginning in verse 13, is 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain receiving living oracles from God. As you know, he's going to bring down these two tablets of stone engraved with the finger of God. But while he's there, in a very clear example of impatience, the people take matters into their own hand. Make us a calf. Up. Make us a calf. And we're going to get to this in our third point, in our first point later. But first, then see that the people take matters into their own hands as Moses delays in their mind to come down from the mountain. Out of sight and out of mind is Moses to them. Number two, then as Moses or as Aaron has the people come and confront him, so the Lord in verses seven through ten, and what I call you better go down. So first, make us a calf. Second, you better go down. The Lord says to Moses, go down. And you'll notice he says, your people there in verse 7, just like Moses is going to say, your people in verse 11, when he implores, implores the Lord. But he says, go down, and he says, for your people, and he puts this, very interesting, at Moses to say, Moses, they're your people, and humanly speaking, you're the instrument by which these people were brought out of Egypt. Even though at the prologue in chapter 20 to the 10 words, you read, God is saying, I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. But for the moment, for the purpose of urging Moses down the mountain, he says, go down for your people whom you have brought out, out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. There's a third thing I want us to see in this next section. Basically, God, Moses is saying to God, do this for you. So first, make us a calf. Second, you better go down. Third, do this for you. God, your reputation is on the line. And he says, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of of the earth. This is the, the appeal by Yahweh himself, or by, by Moses, to the Lord himself, God, your reputation is on the line. Please, don't go down flaming right here. And he says, they're your people, verse 11. And he says, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt. So both Moses and God is saying to Moses, they're your people, and you brought them down up out of the land of Egypt. And then Moses, in saying, do this for you, in his appeal to the Lord, he is imploring the Lord. Kids, let me say, have you ever heard the word implore? You know what that means. That's a very big word. But to implore someone is to beg them. Whatever you do, don't do it. It'd be like if you know that your favorite food is lasagna and your birthday's coming up and you say to mom, whatever you do, whatever you do, 
make your way. Okay, I'm begging you. That's what it means to enjoy. You can make anything, Mom, for dinner. Just make sure it's lasagna because it's my favorite food. And that's Moses imploring the Lord, but he's doing it with a sense of God's reputation in mind. And he says, he even calls God as though God could forget. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Remember, recall, not like remember that the zip code in Taylor's is 29687, but remember for the purpose of acting for the sake of your great name, the one by whom you swore, he says, those to whom you swore by your own self, and you said to them, I'll multiply your offspring, even though we read in Genesis eleven twenty seven that at this point, that right before the call for Abram and Isaac, Abram and Sarah to get up and go to a land they had never seen, their family consisted essentially of just them two, just an elderly, childless couple. Moses, he reminds God of his own words. He quotes God. He said, look, you said to them, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I've promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Does the Lord do this for you? But now verses 15 to 20. Coming down, I call this coming down and burning up. We read this, it says, and as soon as he came near the camp and he saw the calf and the dancing Moses' anger, this is verse 19, his anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. Isn't this amazing? There's this comparison of the Lord and Moses. The Lord saying to Moses, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. And then the Moses is saying this to the Lord, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. Moses, the Lord's concern, right? Or Moses' concern for God. Oh, wait, Lord, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Not so fast. Be, take it a little easy here. But then look at Moses' own response in verse 19. He comes near and he sees their idolatry and full display. He sees it. He hears it. He smells it. He sees the golden calf. He smells the burnt offering, right? He smells those burnt offerings, verse 6. He hears the sound of singing. He hears the sound of dancing. And his anger gets the best of him. It says, his anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. Maybe some of you know moments like this, just unbridled anger. And he had it. He had it. It wasn't that he shouldn't have felt anger, but he shouldn't have taken, right kids? He shouldn't have taken those two tablets engraved by the finger of God and thrown them and broken them there before them. But then there's this, verses 21 through 24. Now it's Moses speaking to Aaron, and he says, what did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously they've done nothing. You capitulated to them. You gave in 
to them. And look at Aaron. He's like, Aaron's like, Moses, like back away from the ledge. Verse 22, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. And then look what he does. He discredits them. You know the people. It's their problem. He blame shifts. They are set on evil. He deflects responsibility. He said, they said to me, as though he was to be taking orders from them, make us gods who shall go before us. For a moment, turn to Exodus 24 and look at verse 14. Moses is going up with his assistant Joshua, and he's going to go up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Moses was supposed to be, or Aaron was supposed to be leading and not listening here. He's capitulating to their demand. They gather together, and imagine the hubris of this as though he's their slave. That Aaron exists to do whatever the children of Israel want him to do. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And there seems to be no pause, right? He immediately, he doesn't argue, he doesn't resist. He's looking around at all the gold earrings and he's like, give them to me. And he actually fashions this gold calf. But look there in verses 21 through 24. He puts this this way. He said, so I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So far, so good. He hasn't perjured himself. But look at the next verse. So I said to them, right? Let, let, any, who have, let any who have gold take it off. But here's the departure. So they gave it to me. He's still good. And I threw it into the fire. He's shading the truth at this point. And out came this calf. Utter foolishness. Yeah. Yeah. Is that like a cookie coming out of a cookie jar that where you've told your children, you ask permission before you go get those Oreos up in the cabinet, and they would say, it would be like you saying, kids, you telling your mom and dad, I reached up into the cabinet and suddenly three Oreos ended up in my mouth, and I don't know how it happened. It's a miracle, mom and dad, an absolute miracle. And that's what they represented. That's what Aaron represented. What foolishness. And then sixthly, as we look at the text, who's on the Lord's side in verses 25 through 29. You can see Moses, the the tablets are already broken. He's already confronted Aaron. Of course, he's already pled earlier. He's already pled for God, right? He's already pled that God's anger not burn and that God would show mercy toward his people. But it says, when Moses saw the people had broken loose, right? That is, they had gone full bore into this sinful idolatry. This is amazing to think 
when you, when, you, when you really think about what's taken place here, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Remember here in verse 4 that after Aaron had received the goal from their hands, he'd fashioned it, he'd made this golden calf, this is their word. This is what they said. This was the cry, verse 4. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Think about this. Did we not read in Exodus 20? Was this not the prologue to the ten words? And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Imagine then the great departure that's taken place. It's why the words are found there in verse 25. The people had broken loose. And God let them break loose, right? God's given them over in judgment to their idolatry. And it says, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he said this. And some of you know we have this song in our hymnal, who is on the Lord's side. And there's this amazing scene where he says, come to me. Are you on the Lord's side? You come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Which I find amazing, right, when you think about that Aaron, of course, is from the tribe of Levi, And he's betrayed the trust of leadership that he's had. But at Moses' call, it's the sons of Levi that gather around him at the end of verse 26. And he says, put your, thus says the Lord God, as though this is a word from the Lord through Moses. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side. Each of you go to and fro from gate to gate, that is all throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And it's hard to fathom this act of judgment that has its source in God, the Lord God of Israel, through Moses to any who would answer the call. And it was, of course, the sons of Levi who did that. We read, they did according to the word of Moses. And of course, the word of Moses, Moses would say, is the word of the Lord God of Israel. And look what they do. 3,000 men of the people fell. Now, in the scheme of things, out of several million, that's not a lot. But I promise you, it was a bloody, horrific mess. God was judging his people that day. And that, of course, points out to our second, points us to our second point in our sermon, directs us to that, that idolatry brings judgment. And look what Moses says in verse 29, today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. There would be no cleansing No going on without this horrible judgment, humanly speaking. Horrible. 
And it's hard to believe that Moses would use the word blessing at the end of that day. But he says, it's at this cost that you were ordained for Yahweh's service. That this day may, if you will, be behind us. And if you go now to this last point, what I call, please blot me out. You see, it says that Moses, verse 31, he returned to the Lord and he says, and he said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. Imagine he's still very conscious, even though 3,000 have fallen by the sword at the hands of the sons of Levi. He's very open with the Lord, right? He's told the people, verse 30, you've sinned a great sin, but I'm going to go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. That's that idea of covering it. And so he says to the Lord, alas, his people has sinned a great sin. He's telling the Lord what he told the people. They've made for themselves gods of gold. And now look at the selfish, selflessness of Moses here. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, Please blot me out of your book that you have written. I want to add, as you think of the word blot, like ink on a piece of paper, or maybe ink on a shirt, blot, that blot really has two ideas biblically. One is that idea from Psalm 50, or here as well, and that is that removal, that expunging, that cleansing of sin that's on our record and on our persons. And then the other is this having our names blotted out or removed from the book of life. You read that even in Revelation 3. Turn with me just for a moment that you might see that to the church at Sardis in Revelation 3 in one of the letters to the churches. The Lord's instructed John to write to say in verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. This is what actually Moses has in view here. Now, In application, I want to flesh out these three points and leave you as we've seen the text. Because, of course, the Lord's retort to Moses, his response in verse 33 is that, look, sin has awful, terrible consequences. And he says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. You let me deal with with people, with my people. He says, you go, and in effect, he's saying to Moses, stay in your lane. You go, lead the people to the place about which I've spoken you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. No golden calf, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. It's a very sobering word. So as we wrap up, I want you to think, about this first point that you are 
If you're not an idolater, you have great capacity for idolatry. If you're breathing, you have the capacity for worship. Think about this. You were made for worship. And what is worship but simply misplaced? In, or what is idolatry but misplaced and misdirected worship? It was John Calvin. He said that the heart is this veritable idol factory. It never stops. It's like being on I-95 and heading south down near Savannah and there's this huge paper plant. No matter when you drive south on 95 getting to southern Georgia right there at the Florida line, you can always smell the paper plant. Your heart, my heart is like that. It's got this capacity to continually create idols. Someone said that idolatry is anything that you will sin to get or sin because you haven't gotten it. Even James says in James 4, 2, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You know that the priority of God alone as this lone object of our worship, it's why we're gathered here this morning. It's clear from that first commandment. You shall have no gods besides or before me. And the second builds on it. It's like the first, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And he goes on to say, you shall not bow down to them or serve them because I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep me, keep my commandments. And you might say that that second commandment found in Exodus 32, the promise, the warning is fulfilled here in Exodus 32 on the day of the golden calf. Some of you think, I don't get this. Like, I don't have a golden calf. That's likely true, but you have others. Can I ask you this morning, what are your idols? Just bear with me for a moment. What is it that you desire that you do not have? Maybe what is it that you have that you don't want? You fantasize about, you dream about life would really be good if I didn't have this on me. What is it that you think about, that you dream about, that you talk about? Kids, what is it that you draw pictures about and doodle, like pretty consistently? What are those things? There's nothing wrong with drawing pictures. There's nothing wrong with thinking or dreaming. There's nothing wrong even with desiring something. But it's always about that getting out of line. Desiring something inordinately. If you're an adult, what is it that you spend generous amounts of time doing online research? What rules your heart? What is it like Gollum in the Lord of the Rings that you call my precious? What is it that you do that with? 
Is it excitement? Is it just anathema that you would be bored? Is that the worst thing ever? Is it the next thing to buy, the next vacation? Are you like, hey, we just got done with that vacation, and you're on the plane flying back, and you're already researching your next vacation? Is it marriage? Maybe not a golden calf. Or someone to understand you who will really be into you and get you? And think about it this way. An idol may be something you already possess, but it may be this unfulfilled desire or wish that God has not yet granted you. And that was James' point in James 4. So idolatry has this very broad boundary. It extends to what and who we desire, but it also includes the very things that we may not, that we may have already. I remember the day when Clemson football was too important for me. It was an idol. We would lose on Saturday, and I would be miserable on Sunday. Does anyone know what that's like? Something's too important. It was an idol, and I needed to kill it. I could enjoy Clemson football without making it an idol. So that my joy was dependent on whether my team won or lost, where it wouldn't be. For Israel at the foot of the mountain, they craved this physical golden god isle in the form of a calf on the premise that it would go before them. And even worse, that these were the gods who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Moses was out of sight and he was out of mind so that they thought an idol was the answer. They were willing to pay a high price to have what they wanted. An idol is something that you too will compromise to have. It's something that you will pull down the shades on the window of your conscience to block the light of truth. An idol is what puts weight on your hands to compress and suppress what you know before God is right. It's something that you will demand to have more quickly at the price of your integrity. You will not wait. The waiting for Moses was not the cause of their idolatry. It was the occasion for it. We must distinguish between the two. Some of you are impatient. Let me give you a hint. When does your sinful anger explode? Where you're, the location of your anger that's sinful is often the location of your idolatry. It's the same GPS location. How is it that you've literally frozen another person out of your life like tossing a dead fish on ice? Here's you. Here's you. There they are. And you've tacked up a sign that says no entry permitted. You won't be bothered. 
maybe you won't be reconciled. Maybe you've made an idolatry about what you think is right. Like the children of Israel making a demand on Aaron up, make us gods who shall go before us. And your impatience betrays you. Your rejection of authority is ratting you out. You're like Woody Allen justifying a sexual relationship with his adopted daughter with this argument, with this justification. The heart wants what it wants as though that were a satisfactory defense. Christian, beware. Yes, you have a new nature. Yes, you have the indwelling Spirit of God. But your heart, my heart, this side of glory is still prone to idolatry, even if no golden cap is ever spotted on your mantle. We are all idolaters. Just briefly, you've seen how idolatry brought judgment. You see the impact of this. You see the broken trust between Moses and Aaron. You see Moses' anger. You see Moses' sinful response. Not the anger, but the anger that would take the two tablets of the covenant and throw them down and break them. A distinction between righteous anger and sinful anger. And there's an application there, moms and dads in particular. Beware that your children's sin and rebellion is not the occasion for yours in response. I've shared this before, that one time in a moment, there was an accident. We had just gotten new floors in our house, um, this thin hardwood floor. And one of our sons was maybe careless for a moment, and a whole gallon of milk or water ended up on the kitchen floor. Just, you know how it comes, go, 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 out the thing. And I lit him up to my shame. You know what I was idolizing? What was more important to me? That floor was more important to me than the heart of my son. Not even an act of rebellion or sin on my son's part, just normal accidents happen. And I responded that way. Don't make your brother's and sisters sin, or your children sin, and even children, you guys that are kids, and you're wise enough to know when mom and dad have made a mistake, when they've sinned, when they've done something wrong, maybe that's confessible to you. Don't let that be an excuse for you to respond sinfully. There's a third point that I want us to remember, and that is it's only at the cross that the high price only brothers and sisters at the cross, that the high price of idolatry is paid redemptively. Only there. I want you to think about this as we bring this message to a close. Israel clearly played, there was a great price paid here in Exodus 32 
in what we can call the, the golden calf incident. You know, it's so such a significant incident that Moses retells it in Deuteronomy 9. It's so significant that I believe that when the psalmist in Psalm 115 is phrasing, framing those words, their idols or silver and gold, the work of human hands, what, like we had in our call to worship. Those who make them become like them. So do all trust. So do all who trust in them. Perhaps it framed Jesus' words to the woman at the well in John 4 that the Father desires worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. In 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul is giving a warning against idolatry, he speaks, he uses as his example, he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's quoting from Exodus 32 and verse 6. And this is Paul's instructions. He says, these things took place as examples for us that we might desire evil as they did. He's writing to the church. He's writing to the church and acknowledging the contingency that we too might desire evil. And he's saying the antidote for this is to be aware of what has already been written of what's, take place, what's taken place in earlier days. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6 and we'll end here. As you look at 1 Corinthians 6 and we close, and I make this point that it's only at the cross that the high price of idolatry is paid redemptively. There's a huge point here, and that's to remember, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, that coveting is essentially idolatry. On the face of it, idolatry you would connect with the second commandment, idolatry, making graven things with our hands that we might bow down, things representative of things on earth, under the sea and in the sky. That's the second commandment. But Paul says in Ephesians 5 that actually coveting, wanting that which is another's inordinately in a way that it controls us, in a way that it acts like a ring in our nose that when you pull on it, we inevitably follow it. It's whatever you follow that's not in accord with the gospel. Now look at 1 Corinthians 6, we'll end here. The context in chapter 6 is that Paul is saying, don't do wrong by one another. That's why he's saying, don't be suing one another and bringing lawsuits against each other in the church. So remember this principle, don't do wrong. But now this is what he's saying. In verse 9, the consequences of those who are continual wrongdoers with no thought for God or his law, or that love for God is expressed in obedience to his word. He says in verse 9, here, here it is, 
There's only two types of people, those who are in and those who are out. The righteous and the unrighteous. Those who inherit the kingdom of God and those who, do, who are not, who are subject to the judgment and the wrath of God. Those who are under the canopy of the blood of Christ, the two sides of one coin where they've been forgiven, their guilt is expunged, it's washed away, they're not held responsible now for their sin, that's on Christ. And on the other side of that coin is that the righteousness of God is credited to them. It's not only that they've never sinned, but it's as though they've always obeyed. And Paul says, right in the middle of it, he speaks of idolaters there in verse 9. These unrighteous, a.k.a. dot, 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 will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. But look at this good word, this gospel word. And such were some of you. But you were washed You are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of the Son of God and by the Spirit of our God. My friends, this is the prophet, the true and better Moses who says, take me and take my life and by my life keep their names in the book of life and blot out their sins. He is the prophet like Moses, the true and better Moses who says in the spirit of Isaiah 55, and he says it to each of us this morning, and if you're, walk, you're watching and you're wondering, how do I get right with God? Here it is. Here's the invitation. He says, idolaters, you come. You come. Just come. Oh, you don't have any money. Your wallet's empty. You have nothing to give, maybe just your sins. Here's the word, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The Lord Jesus says in Matthew 11, he says this, he says, come to me all you who are weary. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He paid a high price. He paid the high price for our idolatry. There's none of us who haven't broken the second commandment. There's none of us who cannot confess our own golden calves. And nothing but the lifeblood of the Son of God could satisfy the demanding 
price of idolatry. Do you know that even the Son of God, even He faced this? Do you know that the Lord Jesus was tempted to idolatry in Matthew 4? It said, Satan took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, he said to the devil, he said, or the devil said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. But Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. If we're not idolaters, we have great capacity for it. Idolatry brings judgment. And idolatry has a very high price. And that's the point of the message. But it's only at the cross that that high price of idolatry is paid redemptively. And so Paul can write to the church at Corinth, and he says, you were there, you were these, these described you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Fellow idolaters, come. Come this morning to our Lord Jesus and be healed of your vain your faults, and your misdirected worship and join the company of the true worshipers of God.